have a um, single specific text that we're going to look at today, so I can't say turn to. I know that's probably going to fluster some of you because you're so used to that, but anyway, it's going to happen. <laughs> early, early last year, um, I felt God prompt me to start writing some things down. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I, I mean, I love theology. I love the deep truths of the reality of who God is and what Jesus has done for us. But one of my little pet frustrations, I suppose, is that I, I struggle to find um, good books that present life-changing theology from a perspective of grace. It's a real, it's a real challenge. I've spent hours and hours just combing the bookshelves at places like Kurong, and we were there again just a couple of weeks ago, just, just looking for something that is, presents the, the true good news of the gospel and the perfect, pure nature and character of God through the filter of the new covenant. Everything is, this so, I mean, you can find some, but you've got, you usually got to pick up a book that's got three or 400 pages, you know? And, and very few people, when they see the size of a book, they get, oh, that's too hard to read. And so I felt God prompt me to start putting some things down, and my intention was to start writing just some very short, almost like articles, of three or four pages long, where it presents the, the truth of the good news in a very easy-to-read fashion, but with a depth of theology in it that people could grasp that would change their life. And then as I started putting some, some notes together and then the whole COVID thing hit, and I mean, last year was just this chaotic, disastrous year, I think, for most people. And so things kind of went on hold. And then in about October last year, I felt God really prompt me and stir me to start doing it again. And so I've started to write a series of books. And so um, I didn't really have much of a break at all from pretty much from end of October right the way through to now. I've, I've sat and I've written every day. And I've written eight books in the last two and a bit months. And they've gone from being like three pages, which is my intention. They're still short. They're, they're little booklets that I've, that I've written. They're about, these are, here's just some. So they're that kind of size. All right. So they're about 25. Some, the latest one I've written, which is a little bit more in-depth, is about 40 pages long. But that's small and it's big print on small pages. So. But I did it because I'm so frustrated. I, I've gone through... Book after book after book, little things in, in, in Kurong and other places, trying to find something. And everything seems to be just written from a religious point of view instead of a grace point of view. And I think there is a desperate need for people to be grounded well in the truth. Amen? Where it brings, brings life. It just releases people into freedom. And so that's, that's what's prompted me to do that. And so I'm going to put some of those up. Uh, we're going to convert them into PDFs. They'll go up on the website and you can download them. Or if you want a printed copy, then we can put some orders in. Um, 
and we're not going to make money out of it, but we'll just charge whatever it costs me to get them printed, which is about three or four dollars each, all right, just to cover our cover our costs. So the intention is to just write a whole lot. I've written one on salvation, uh, on eternal security, on things like repentance, because people are so confused as to what that actually is. Um, on confession, on water baptism. Do you know that there is such a great truth? Everything I looked at when I was going through these bookshops, look at, uh, look at water baptism as... You have to do it because it's an act of obedience. And I couldn't find one that actually brought freedom and the life and the power that is in that. I don't want to use the word ceremony because <laughs> that's not really what it is. And so I've written some of those things down. And so what I wanted to do today was just start by looking at some of these things that I've written. Um, because it's amazing, I've, even though we, we regularly go over kind of the same kind of stuff, when you sit and have a conversation with someone or you ask them some questions, you know, none of us actually retain that much, which is one of the reasons I wanted to write something that you can have in your hand that you can easily refer to. Um, but we forget stuff all the time. You know, the, the, one of, some of the most important words that Jesus ever spoke was just before he, he left this planet when he gave what we call the Great Commission. Go into all the world. Right? Make disciples. Don't make slaves. Make, bring people into the freedom of the good news of the gospel. It says, my presence and my authority and my power is going to be with you to do that. Folks, when we preach the purity of the gospel, there's an authority that comes with that. But God doesn't authorise distorted views. So I love what Lucian said this morning, talking about just truth. It, we, we have to have truth. And so I want to just touch on again this morning on, on the good news of the gospel. Really. I mean, how many of us would be confident to say, hey, yeah, I know what the gospel really is, and I can articulate that. I know that some of us, we could. And, and I think if we get backed into a corner where we're in a conversation, you'll be amazed at what does actually start to flow out of you because there's been so much truth that's actually been deposited. But if we're honest with ourselves, most of us don't have the confidence to do that. We don't, actually don't realise what we do know. The good news of the gospel... Now, I think pretty much everyone in this room understands that, that we need saving. Every one of us needed Jesus. We were lost without him. I think most of us would understand the story of what happened in the Garden of Eden. God creates Adam and Eve perfect, puts them in a perfect garden. They are created with, in perfect relationship with God. But they are tempted by the devil and they decide, they make a decision to trust his lies and his deception rather than trust in what God says. And so it becomes a trust issue. And because they distrusted God, right, and were deceived, they rebelled against God. They were disobedient to what God had required of them, had requested of them. 
And so we know the story. Sin comes into the world, and sin has a consequence. How many of you know what, what are the consequences of sin? Because this is part of the gospel. There are four things. Anyone can tell me what they are? Pete? Fear? Okay, well, that's, a, that, that's one of the kind of overflow things that happen. But there are, four, there are four very clear things that Scripture teaches us that happens as a result of Adam's sin. And we, because we've all descended from Adam, we are all affected by that. Separation from God. We were created for intimate, perfect, loving fellowship with God. To know him intimately. The Bible says that God would come and he would walk with Adam every single day. Man, that's intimate relationship. Wouldn't you, how different would your life be if you could actually physically experience that every single day? Because Adam did. Man, I tell you, our lives would be very, very different. So what, is, what were one of the consequences of sin? It was separation from God. And he was expelled from that garden where he could enjoy God's presence every day. What else? Spiritual death. So not only was he separated from God in his fellowship, in that intimate relationship, but his spirit was dead to God. He could no longer have that spiritual connection. Adam wasn't just simply created as a physical being. He was created as a spirit being. And his connection, the way that he would relate to God, was at a spiritual level, and he lost that ability. And so there was a spiritual death that came, but not only that, God said that you are going to die. And so this, this, this man that was created to live forever lost his immortality and became a mortal being. And so death, physical, not just spiritual death, but physical death came into the world. And we all suffer that. We live in a world that is, that is being corrupted by sin and part of that consequence is that we get sick and we age and we die. The fourth thing was this, is that man lost his authority. We were given authority to rule and reign this world. David writes in the Psalms that the heavens are the Lord's, the earth he has given to man. He has given to you and I. What happens on this planet is, is our responsibility. You know, I was asked a question the other day. Someone made a, a comment to me and uh, was a bit angry about it. But they said, why is God... Why is God taking so long in sorting out the problems on this planet? That's a religious view. That is not an understanding of what Jesus has done. See, what is Je Jesus came not just to die for our sin. He came to restore authority to man. The devil had taken that authority. He had it. And God came to restore authority to you and I so that the church could rise up, the sons of God could rise up and actually start releasing the kingdom on the earth and that's what's going to bring change, amen? 
And that's the mandate that you and I have, to actually bring change to the earth. We can't stand on this planet waving a finger at God and saying, it's all your fault, why don't you come and sort it out? He did 2,000 years ago. And he's waiting for you and I to rise up in our rightful position as sons sons of God and take that authority and make a difference. And so man lost four things. And Jesus came back to restore all four things. Amen? We need saving because we've been separated from God and we've lost that eternal life. Jesus comes back to restore all of those things. Now I think we know, we understand, we have a basic understanding of that. So we need saving. Why is God God delaying? Why doesn't he just jump into the planet and just change everything and wipe, you know, just wrap up time as we know it and just change everything? Why? Because he has a heart of love and grace and he wants all men to be saved. So he's delaying things so that as many people as possible can come into the kingdom. That's the heart of a father. I don't want one son to be abandoned. I want to give as much time as possible for as many people as possible to come into the kingdom. And so you can view things from a religious point of view or you can view things from a grace point of view. You can see things negatively and point the finger and blame God or you can see things through the cross and, un- and, and, and through the eyes of God and then say, and be inspired by that and say, man, we have a, 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 a participation in this. We have a role to play to see as many people as possible come into the kingdom. Amen? Folk, that's part of the gospel. That's all part of the gospel. So how are people saved? We know they need saving. So how are they saved? Are we all asleep? How are people How did you get saved? How did you get saved? You accepted Jesus. Why did you accept Jesus? Because someone told you. <laughs> if, you can't, if you don't hear the good news, how can you respond to it? So people who need to hear about Jesus, they need to hear about what he has done. Do you know that the true meaning of repentance... Oh, I don't want to get sidetracked. But <laughs> the true meaning of repentance is to change your mind. It's to change the way you think, in particular, about Jesus. Repentance is not this horrible, drab thing that you get so solemn and you get so down on yourself and you feel so bad and you cry and you, you, know, you, 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 you beg God to forgive you. That is not biblical repentance. That's repentance from a legalistic, religious point of view. Jesus came to change all of that. Came to change all of that. Repentance is about changing your mind about Jesus. 
And so when does repentance actually start? It starts when you first start to hear truth about Jesus and the Holy Spirit starts to actually work on your heart and your mind and brings you to a place where you make a decision. <laughs> it's changing the way you see Jesus. It's changing the way you, you view him so that it, you come to a point then where you start to believe. What is that? Faith. And then what do you do? When you finally, hey, this is really good news. I actually believe in all of this. What does the Bible say? Romans 10 verse 9. If you believe in your heart and if you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. What are you confessing? Jesus. In the, in the book I've, I haven't got a printed copy here. I've just asked, is that the one I asked you to read, Kate? I just sent a copy of it to Cade to have a look, to vet for me. Can't remember how many scriptures are there. Okay, 46. 46 scriptures in the Bible that speak about confession. If I was to say that word to you, what do you think? What's the immediate thought that comes into your mind when I say confession? Confess your sins. Is that what people think? That's the general thing. That, that's what everyone believes. Immediately. Confess your sin. Do you know that from the cross onwards, from Calvary onwards, there's only three verses in the entire New Testament that speak about confession. Three. Do you know there's only one out of those three that are directed to Christians. Only one. And yet, the way that confession gets presented, it's all about you, as a Christian, continually confessing your sin. And yet there's only one. And you know what the context of that one scripture is? Confess your sins to each other. James 5.16. It has to do with relational discord that's happened in the church that's caused division and disunity and disharmony and strife. And so the instruction is, guys, your relationships need to be healed. So now come and confess your sin to one another. It's not confession to God. For sin. It's confessing to one another so that you can put things right so health can come back into the body. One scripture that's directed to Christians regarding confessing sin. And, what, and yet what has the church generally done? It's got people on this endless treadmill and this merry-go-round of daily confessing sin to try and get right with God. Christians to get right with God in a complete denial of the fact that scripture says you are, you have been made the righteousness of Christ, of God through Christ. You have been. You have been made holy. You have been made perfect. I have perfect right standing with God. Can you see why some of these books are needed? <laughs> Can you see why we need truth ongoingly being massaged into us? 
You made me get sidetracked. So what, what I wanted to touch on today is, is this. It, what happens when we get saved? What actually happens when you get saved? There are eight things. Actually, there's more than that. But there are, there are eight quite specific things that God does for you and I when we get saved. And uh, we, we, there's no way we can do eight today. But we'll just look. Do a couple, maybe two or three. All right? Because this is the heart of the gospel. This is the core of the gospel. And if we're going to go and actually preach the good news of the gospel, then we need to know what the good news is. Do you know that telling people, you better make sure that you're confessing your sin every single day because you're a horrible, wretched person and you've got to make sure that you stay right with God because if you don't confess your sin every day, you're going to step out of fellowship and, man, what happens then if you die? You're finished. That's a very tenuous view of salvation. And that comes because people don't understand the transaction of salvation and what actually Happens, And so it's so important for us to know truth. So let's look at a couple of these things. Are you okay? So let me just not waffle. Let me try and stick to what I've got here now. So number one. And these are not simply theories. Do you know that, that if, if the gospel and being saved is just a theory, then what good is it? It actually has to translate into some practical application for our life and practical change for our life. Otherwise, all you've got is just another religious system, but with no reality. That's why when people say to me, and I've had these conversations with a number of pastors, I meet with pastors on a pretty regular basis, and this is one of the things that come up, the conversation between being positionally in Christ and the reality of living in Christ. So yeah, you are positionally right with God, but you're not really. Who's ever heard that argument? because I hear it all the time, with pastors, which is really disappointing. If I am only positionally right with Jesus, and that's all it ever is going to be, there's no power to change my life. None whatsoever. Then all you've got is a theory. But Jesus came to bring life to us so that our life would change. Amen? So it's not just a, this isn't a theory. These are things that actually bring practical change, real change to our life. So number one, the moment you get saved, you get brought into the family of God. You become a son or a daughter of God. Paul writes in Romans 8, and he says the Holy Spirit testifies to our spirit. He lets us know. He convinces us of the fact that God is now our personal father and that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. 
This is what John writes in John 1, verse 12 says, But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn. (laughs) This is not a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan. This rebirth comes from God. I think it's uh, 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 1 John 3, verse 1 talks about the fact that God refers to us as his beloved children. He has blessed us. He has poured out his love upon us. Why? Because we are now children of God. Now, folks, that should change our life. That should just... That, you're not an orphan. You're not a, you're not a homeless waif. You're a child of God. You've been brought into his family into fellowship with him. And I will never be abandoned. No matter, do you know this? No matter what I do. What do you do when your kids are naughty? Depends on their age, doesn't it? Huh? (laughs) Take the computer away. (laughs) So God does, he lovingly disciplines us but he doesn't punish us. He redirects our path, shows us truth, brings things into the light so that we can adjust into his image. All right? So he does deal with us lovingly, but he never kicks us out of the house. He never abandons us. I mean, how many of you, as Christians, you know you've done something wrong and, and, and you've, you've felt bad, but how many of you have slipped into that guilt mode where you now think God wants nothing to do with me? I'll guarantee every one of us have. Somewhere along the line. Hopefully, as we've understood more and more about God's grace those moments become less and less and less and less to the point where they should never actually happen ever again. But I guarantee you in our Christian walk, for every one of us, somewhere along the line we've had those experiences. God wants nothing to... I've blown it and he's now abandoned me. Folk, that's a lie of the devil. It's an absolute lie. And we fall for it because we haven't had truth massaged in as to the reality of what happens on the day that you get saved. God will never, ever, 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 ever abandon you. Ever. Salvation is the doorway through which we enter into the family of God. And as a son of God, as a daughter of God, you have rights. You have been given rights. I said before, one of the consequences of Adam's sin was that we lost authority. So what do you get back as a son of God? You get authority back. You get authority back. Now we all know the story of the prodigal son. You know, the father never abandoned him. He, he just went. He did a runner. But what happened when he came back to the father. The father runs to him, embraces him, puts a robe on him. That represents something. 
put a ring on his finger, that represented authority and ownership. You know that you and I have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And in Bible days, they would seal letters and documents with, a, with a, uh, the imprint from a thing on a ring. That was the seal. Ephesians 1 says that you and I have been sealed by the Holy Spirit forever. You have authority that was lost, now been given back to you. There's too much demonic stuff, and I don't look for demons under every rock, but I want to tell you, folks, there's so much spiritual stuff that goes on behind the scenes that we are, have become a little bit blasé to, and there's stuff sometimes that goes on in our lives that has a source. And if you don't rise up against that source and the authority that you've been given, it will override your life. Hello? Number two. Can we do two today? <laughs> this one we've dealt with so many times, but I'm going to deal with it again and it's because it is so important. And this is the one that I think trips up so many people. And it's this, is that we have been completely, 100%, totally forgiven. Of what? Of? Of? We've been forgiven of? Sin. Sin. It's not rocket science. Pretty easy. How much sin? All sin. Majority of Christians don't believe that. The sad thing for me is that there's a big percentage of pastors who don't believe that. Which is why there's so much confusion on this thing of repentance and confession. Paul writes this, Romans 4 verse 7. He says, Oh, what joy! <laughs> oh, what joy! For those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose sin is no longer counted against them by the Lord. Some people say, well, we're only forgiven some sins. You're only forgiven the sins that you can remember to list or confess. The problem with that is it makes your sin more powerful than Jesus' sacrifice. It also denies what God is saying regarding the promise of forgiveness. Because he says, I'm never going to count your sins against you. In actual fact, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, around verse, where is it? Okay, 19, somewhere around there, that God was reconciling the world to himself through Jesus, not counting men's sins against them. God's not counting your sin against you. Not only that, but Psalm 103 says this. This is David looking into the future, looking through the corridor of time, looking to a place where grace is going to take over. And he says this. He has not punished us for all our sins, nor does he deal with us as we deserve. He has removed our rebellious acts as far away from us as the east is from the west. 
It's Psalm 103, verse uh, 10 to 12. So he's not holding sin against you. He's removed sin from you. Then it gets even better. And this is one of my favorite verses, I think. And it's Colossians chapter 2. I want to read this from the New Living Translation. It says this. You were dead because of your sin and because, of, because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. There was something in us that had to actually be removed. Then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sin. Now I've studied this. That Greek word there means all-inclusive for all time. All-inclusive for all time. What have you been forgiven? All your sin, everything you can ever do, past, present and future, all time forgiven. And just to seal the deal, this is what Paul continues to write. He says this, He cancelled the record that contained the charges against us. He took it and destroyed it, nailing it to the cross. Folks, that's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that not only the Old Testament law, which was there to condemn you, which was nailed to the cross, but that law produced a whole list of things that you kept doing wrong. Whole list. Imagine how long it is. For some of you, it's a bit longer than others. What did Jesus do? 2,000 years ago, he took that list and he nailed it to the cross forever. If you read on, it says the result of that is that that act totally disarmed principalities and powers that could come and attack you, and condemn you. The good news of the gospel? But how often do you hear that aspect of it presented as part of the gospel? You just, you just don't. What is the general view? Oh, God forgives you so long as you've confessed all that sin. But then only up until then. Because his blood's not powerful enough the transaction of the cross isn't powerful enough to cover future sin. See, that's the religious thinking. <laughs> but when did Jesus die? Exactly, Dioni. When did Jesus die for you and I? When? 2,000 years ago. That means all your sin was future. All your... So the argument that, that your future sin isn't forgiven is just ridiculous. It's not logical. This is not complicated. This is actually the simplicity of the gospel. But now it goes even better. Isaiah 43 and verse 25 says this. I, talk, this is God speaking himself. I am he who blots out your sin for my sake. 
You know, we, th- we, we think that God just dealt with our sin just for our sake. Do you know that he dealt with it for his own sake as well? Why? Because he w- didn't want anything that would stand in the way from having a perfect loving relationship with you and I. So he forgave you, not just for you. He forgave you for himself. <laughs> that, that was spoken very simply, but that is a profound, deep truth. He forgave us for his sake. Then it goes on and it says this, he will remember your sin no more. That means once it was dealt with 2,000 years ago, that was it. That was it. And yet so why do so many Christians go on this merry-go-round of continually confessing, continually? Should you confess sin? I think you should. But the real confession is a confession in the forgiveness that Jesus has already given to you. It's not in how bad you are. It's in how good he is. Amen? Totally different. We might deal with that sometime in the future a little bit more. But it isn't just the case that God has forgiven our sin, covered it, he remembers it no more, he's removed it from us. He does something even more. He does something even more. 1 John 1, 9 says this, and this is directed to people who are coming to Jesus. It's not for Christians. Might look at that again later as well. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sin. What's all our sin? And purify us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's the power of the blood of Jesus. So God doesn't just forgive your sin. He doesn't just remove it. He doesn't just cut it out of you. Right? You, your sin nature has been, circum- it's been cut out of you. So it's no longer dwelling within you at all. Not only has God done that, not only does he um, forget our sin, but now he cleanses you from all sin. Is this just a theory? No. This is reality. This is reality. So here's a question. We'll close with this. Why do we still sin? And this is the thing that causes people to get tripped up all the time. It really is. This is is the, the big theological question. If all of this is true, and God has actually forgiven us, removed sin from us, and he removed it by actually removing the sin nature from within us. You and I were born with a sin nature because we all descended from Adam. You had sin inside you. It controlled your life. It was a parasite that attached itself to an inner nature that you had. But Colossians 2 says that that nature 
has been cut out of us. And when that sin nature was cut out of us, so was sin, the body of sin. Romans 6 says the body of sin was removed, was done away with. God cut it out of us. Was Adam born? Born. Adam created perfect? Yes, which means he didn't have a sin nature. How did Adam sin? Eve. Yeah, was Eve. Evil Eve. <laughs> Where did sin come from? Because it wasn't in him. It came from outside. The temptation came from out. Sin was external to him. It wasn't internal. And he didn't trust in God. He didn't trust truth. And because of that, he fell for the lie and he was deceived. And in that deception, he wasn't just contaminated with the thought of sin. He was contaminated with sin. And so that every descendant after Adam, Romans 5 tells us, we have been contaminated with that sin. We had, we were born with a sin nature. Oh, but Tony, I've done really, I've tried my best my whole life to live good. I know what it is to do good things, so I'm not totally, completely sinful. But you can do a whole lot of good things, and that may make you moral. It doesn't make you righteous. It doesn't make you holy before God. Makes you externally a better person, but not internally. Something had to happen internally. So what does God do? He comes and he removes, he cuts out that sin nature from within you and I so that sin is no longer in you controlling you. Sin is external trying to tempt you. All right? Now here's where people do get confused. So, okay, well, if Adam, when he sinned, when he succumbed to that external temptation, then sin came and started to live in him and it corrupted him so that he now had a sin nature. Why wouldn't that then happen to you and I if we succumb to external temptation? This is a deep theological question that's going to take a fair bit to unpack, but I, and I don't have time to do that this morning. But Paul talks about two Adams. Talks about the original Adam, right? And he talks about last Adam, which is Jesus. And Jesus is a superior Adam to the original created Adam. Now what happens when you get saved? This is another one of the things we haven't got to yet and we'll have to do this in a couple of weeks' time or whenever. But the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you. And in that rebirthing, that rebirthed nature is not the rebirth nature of original Adam. It is the rebirth nature of last Adam, of Jesus, which is superior to that original Adam, which means that because you now have Jesus in here, sin can no longer come in to begin to dwell in you but you can still 
be deceived and succumb to external temptation. With me, does that make sense? This is why I think these books are, so, are going to be so important because it's bringing profound, deep theological truth but done in a way where we can just simply un- read it and understand it. Where you don't have to wade through page and page and page of deep, deep kind of academic you know, ways of describing things. It's so desperately needed. So desperately needed. So there's a, the, the gospel is good news, folks. It is such good news. It is such good news. And it's, and it's something that... It, it is something that isn't... Oh, what can I say? We'll, we'll never... Until Jesus comes back and we're with him physically and totally changed into his perfect image, we're going to just keep discovering the depths of what's actually in the gospel. And that's why it's central. It's central to everything. It's central to our life. It's essential and it is central. Amen? So what, hap- what happened? We, we, all we did was look at two things. And we even didn't even get too deep into those two things. What happens when you get saved? You get brought into the family of God. You become a son and a daughter. And you are totally forgiven forever. Of all sin. What does that mean? There's nothing that can ever condemn you before God. Amen. And we've just started. We've just started. There's so much more. Good news of the gospel. Amen. The good news of the gospel. Not religion. Not a religious expression of, you better get saved, you dirty, filthy sinner. No, this is all about Jesus and what he has done. Amen? God bless you. Let that truth go in. Let it go in deep, folk. And we'll try and get some of these uh, articles up on our website so you can download them. Um, I'll come next week maybe with a chart and you can, if anyone wants to order some of these things. Love that you have, Lord, so unconditional, desiring to have fellowship with us. And Father, we thank you that you've made a way for that to be possible. We thank you for your incredible gift of Jesus, for his sacrifice and his perfect life and death and resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that you have done everything necessary to reconcile us to God. We pray, Lord, that as we learn these truths and as they go deep into our spirit, Lord, that they would activate us to be those who witness to the wonder and the glory of your gospel, that we'd be prepared, Lord, to overcome all fear of man and to be bold in the presentation of what you've done for us We thank you that we have a testimony and it's a testimony that overcomes the enemy together with the blood of the Lamb. And we thank you, Lord, for what you have done in partnering with us so that we can be those that have your authority on earth to bring the kingdom in. We pray, Lord, that each and every one of us would take seriously and rejoice in what you've done And live it out, Lord, so that the world can be saved to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.